Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, what additional future steps should the United States and Europe take, if any at all, to counter Russian ambitions? And joining me now is the author of one of the essays in this issue, Angelo Cotavella, professor emeritus of international relations at Boston University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Angelo, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So the real theme of your essay at Strategica is that not only is the United States behaving in an ambiguous fashion right now vis-a-vis our interest in Ukraine, but that we've been doing it there for a very long time. Can you give us kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of the history there? Well, we've been doing it for a very long time with regard to Ukraine because we've had a, an ambiguous policy with regard to, to, to Russia. Um, Russia and, in fact, the Soviet Union, despite the basic enmity that existed uh, toward the Soviet Union, we um, acted toward its subject peoples uh, by, uh, on the surface, uh, sympathizing with their plight and uh, even giving them a few, a little bit of help with regard to to their uh, desire for independence. But on the other hand, uh, firmly supporting the, the Soviet Union's hold on them. Uh, after the, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, in uh, 1991, as uh, Ukraine, which was the, of course, the, the main colony of Russia, the main thing that made Russia into the Soviet Union, was trying to break away, President George H.W. Uh, Bush, reading a speech written by Condoleezza Rice, uh, who at the time was a junior staffer on the NSC, uh, uh, told the Ukrainians to be good little Soviet citizens. Now, uh, afterward, uh, we uh, Ukraine uh, was left with uh, the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world after the United States and Russia, and the United States prevailed on the uh, Ukrainians to give up that arsenal to Russia in exchange for a... a um, weasel-worded U.S. guarantee of its independence and territorial integrity. When then Russia asserted its secular desire for hegemony over Ukraine, uh, the U.S. government uh, reacted, uh, as it has so many times in the past, by uh, a tepid encouragement for, for independence, but not so much as to upset Russia. So the, the problem is that we have been unwilling to set our own, to be straight about our own expectations with regard to what ought to be the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, we have um, uh, uh, acted uh, to support both sides of, of, the, uh, of the argument that uh, is taking place on the ground. On the one hand, uh, supporting the Ukrainians enough to get them in trouble, and uh, on the other hand, uh, supporting uh, Russia enough for it to assert uh, a, a, a degree of, um, of control, which we also find uh, uh, uncomfortable and that uh, we would re- really rather not see. So the first requirement for U.S. foreign policy would be to be clear about what, what we are all about. You write in the piece at Strategica, I'm quoting you here, 
possession of Ukraine is the difference between Russia being a potentially great power and Russia as just another European country. Why is that? What do you mean by that? Well, because uh, Ukraine is, of course, uh, the Ukrainians are Slavic people. They are um, at least as uh, as able, in fact, generally they are considered more able in a variety of ways than, than our Russian, more technically adept, uh, better educated um, than Russians. Ukraine has some of the best agricultural land in the world. Uh, they are... Uh, almost half as numerous as Russians. And uh, together, Ukraine and, uh, and Russia are a, for, are a huge uh, power. They are a power from 200 million people. Uh, without Ukraine, Russia is uh, scarcely 150, and many of those are, um, uh, are Asiatic, and um, not terribly well educated, and certainly not part of uh, of, the, of uh, the Slavic world, or the Western world, for that matter. So, uh, so no, no, Ukraine is the key to Russia being something like a great power. Angela, what do you make of the argument that we heard, especially when this conflict was beginning, that this kind of blow up was inevitable? Because NATO simply moved too far east, that there was simply no way you could move the alliance that close to Russia's borders and not end up eventually with a black eye. Do you find that persuasive? There was a way to make NATO expansion work, uh, but uh, we didn't take it. Uh, it was certain from the beginning that expanding NATO to Russia's borders would anger Russia and that Russia would take some uh, some countermeasures. But we could, ha- could at that time have increased uh, our own armed forces. At the time, this was terribly clear. Uh, I, among many others, said that um, uh, it was very foolish for us to expand NATO while decreasing our armed forces and deployment in, in Europe. Uh, had we been serious, we would have increased them rather than decreased them. Uh, others said, well, perhaps we ought to um, expand NATO, but remove the Article 5 provision an attack on one is an attack on all. Wouldn't that do the trick? And I said, well, that's like offering someone a house, but saying, no, we won't give you the roof. Uh, that was that was quite foolish. Uh, this was typical of uh, U.S. foreign policy's attempt to try to do things on the cheap. But things cannot be done on the cheap. You either do them with, with a due uh, concern for the relationship between ends and means, or you don't do them at all. So let me present you with another argument that we've heard a lot lately, which runs roughly as follows. Ukraine is always going to be of much more importance to the Russians than it is to us. It's not terribly vital to our security. What real cost is there to us to let Moscow stretch its legs a little bit? What do you make of that argument? Well, uh, that argument is half correct. Uh, that is, Russia is, uh, Ukraine is, is far, far more important to Russia than it could ever be to us. The only importance to us, and it is a great one, is precisely that without Ukraine, Russia is merely another power. With Ukraine, well, by golly, Russia was the Soviet Union. Now, of course, there was more Union than, than the possession of Ukraine. There was the, this terrible ideology. Uh, but the capacity 
of the Soviet Union, of, of Russia, to, to do us and the world harm depend on possession of Ukraine. That is why it is important to us. The opening line of your essay at Strategica is lack of means is no part of the reason why U.S. policy is failing to restrain Russia. And of course you'll immediately get a knee-jerk reaction from some people who say, well, what are we going to throw ourselves into the middle of some you know, hot war with Russia? Do we have the means to nip this in the bud short of a big military component? Uh, the means that I was referring to uh, are not military because right. uh, there, there is no need for us to, to, to fight anybody in order to safeguard Ukraine from Russia. Russia is a very, very weak power, especially economically. It is highly dependent on foreign trade. The United States has the total capacity to isolate Russia, to starve it into submission if we wish to do it. Now, that would take a, imposing a secondary trade boycott that would be highly unpopular with an awful lot of people throughout the, throughout the, the world. But if we wish to use those means, we could do it. We could use them. We could also supply arms to the Ukrainians, which would not be enough for Ukraine to conquer Russia, certainly, but it would be quite enough to make Ukraine a, a, a nut too tough for the Soviet army to crack. Uh, make no mistake, Russia has no intention of occupying all of Ukraine. Its objective is precisely what it is in the process of seizing right now. Uh, power over enough of Ukraine to then demand that Ukraine uh, uh, allow those um, regions that are under Russian dominance to still play a role in Ukraine's central government. That will give Russia the capacity to, to uh, remotely control uh, what happens in Kiev and to keep Kiev from a Western alliance, which is Russia's primary objective, primary short-term objective here. Russia would very much like to integrate Ukraine, but that would, could, can come only if they uh, succeed in... Um, uh, as I say, controlling the body politic from within. So you said short-term objective. Long-term, do you think the, the Russian vision is, is more expansionist, or is this really just about this part of Ukraine? Oh, oh no, 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 no. Uh, of course it's expansionist. Uh, the, uh, the Russians still look at the, the Baltic states uh, as, as their natural possession. Um, Vladimir Putin has said, and means, uh, that... Uh, uh, that the fall of the Soviet Union was an enormous tragedy for Russia, and he means to restore as much of it as he can. How much he can restore? Well, that's an open question, and that's a, that's a question he's trying to answer uh, by deeds rather than by words. I should We should clarify one point because when we talked earlier about the ways that we could prevent these things from happening, you mentioned secondary uh, trade sanctions. That's probably not a widely known concept. Just explain for our audience briefly what that means. That simply means uh, not only do we not trade with you, we don't trade with anyone who trades with you. Uh, that's what really puts teeth into sanctions uh, because sanctions are, of course, sanctions imposed by one country on another are terribly easy to evade. You just... Uh, Third countries uh, uh, are often terribly willing 
to play the middleman for profit. Uh, the secondary element eliminates that um, that possibility and that incentive. So final question for you then. I will ask you the same thing that we asked Victor Davis Hansen in our episode with him. Assuming something like the status quo holds as far as how America reacts, you know, we're providing non-lethal aid to Ukraine. They can have all the MREs they want, but nothing that goes boom. Assuming that's well, roughly uh, – please, 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 please note, we are giving them MREs, uh, which are pretty disgusting food. <laughs> we, could be giving, we could be giving them French or Italian rations with wine. At least these poor fellows would, would go into battle uh, in, in a better mood. <laughs> well, assuming that, that we sort of stay here, though, with the, the non-lethal aid, assuming that's roughly the way the Western posture remains, what, in your judgment – uh, what does the world look like for Russia's neighbors a little under two years from now, by the time Barack Obama leaves office? By the time Barack Obama leaves office, there will be far more incentive for Germany's uh, Angela Merkel to um, to look not only at Ukraine, but also at Poland, the way that um, that her predecessors uh, many years ago uh, looked. And say, well, it is a better it is better for us to make our deal with Russia uh, over the um, over the heads of Eastern Europe than to fight Russia for the freedom of Eastern Europe. And uh, that means that um, Russia will have far more say about what Europe looks like than uh, uh, than it should for our own good. All right. Our guest has been Angelo Cotavilla, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Angelo, thanks for being with us. You're most welcome. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.